Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June 6, 2014, and this is episode 1362 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, 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 that's right. Time for your calls to 866-65-THINK-AGAIN, 866-65-THINK. If you're a new listener and that kind of shocks you, but you're thinking, hey, I'm going to get my phone and dial those numbers. Nothing wrong with that, but it's a podcast. You're listening to a recording at all times. There's no live edition. That means if you call, you're going to get a voice message machine and you can leave that voicemail. And uh, if you follow the rules that I'm about to give you, the odds are that you may get on the show in the next week or two. And if you don't hear yourself on the show in the next week or two, it's probably a good idea to call it again. Uh, I would say with call volumes where they at now, we get about 20% to 25% of the calls on the air. It's probably closer to 20% of real calls because I get, I get a handful of calls each time I go screen that are just static and hanging up with people dialing a wrong number or something. And in fact, the number must have got out in some place recently because that's way, way up. So about, you know, 20, 20, uh, 25-ish percent, one, one in four chance of getting on the air. If you do this, call from a quiet area, not from the back of a moped. Number two, if you're on a cell phone, make sure you have good signal. There'll be nobody to tell you you can't be heard and you're sounding like this. Hijack, I, uh, so you won't know. So you need to have good signal or call from a landline, uh, from a quiet area. Ask your question, make your point, whatever you're going to do in 30 seconds or less. Just get right to it and then fill in details after that. Your call will go better and you'll be more likely to get through my screening. With that, um, again, only about a quarter of the calls get on the air. Now, a lot of times you did everything right. We just didn't get the ca your call due to volume. Anyway, um, with that, before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Harvest Eating. The awesome Chef Keith Snow, who, coincidentally, you're going to hear from today. Yep. Chef Keith's going to be answering a question today. I'll tell you what, if you have any questions about cooking, get over to harvesting.com. You can find everything you're looking for there. An amazing podcast, great seasonings. Man, I just put out a video on a brisket that I cooked and a rub that I make using uh, Chef Keith's Slow and Slow as the base for it. Awesome, awesome stuff. Check him out today, harvesteating.com, where you'll learn to cook seasonally and locally, and you'll learn why, 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 you'll learn why cooking is a prepper skill. Next up today, herbs of a different kind. Western Botanicals, my go-to source for anything and everything herbal. If it's not grown in my backyard and I want it, I go to Western Botanicals. If it's an herb and it's legal, then I can find it there, and I'll know it's either organically grown or wild-crafted. And wild-crafted, I am messing up today. Wild-crafted. And, uh, hey, you know what? If I'm not sure what to do, if I'm dealing with an issue, I can call them up and talk to them. They're real people that really care, and they'll help me make a decision for my health. They'll also tell you, hey, we don't do what you're asking for. That's something that's in the realm of the doctors, you know. They're not going to promise you that oregano is going to cure your cancer or something stupid like that. These are real down-to-earth people that really care about you guys. Uh, they're also a huge supporter of the audience. They have a premium members program. And that premium members program gives you 25% off everything they sell. They sell that like a membership for 50 bucks a year. But if you're a member of my support brigade, they give it to you for free. So that pays for your membership to the MSB right away. And if you're a service person, then it, you know, with your service discount, it, it makes it profitable from day one. 
So check them out, Western Botanicals. And Chef Keith at Harvest Eating also gives you guys in the MSB a discount. Good segue there. Hey, if you want to save money on the stuff you're buying every day, from things to cook with, things to garden with, to the tactical, the practical, the in-between, uh, Western Botanicals, you name it, we've got it for you. Over 40 supporting vendors in the MSB offering you discounts that in the prepared to sustainable lifestyle, you're probably buying the stuff for anyway making your membership pay for itself. You'll help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. As I was just kind of rambling on about there, if you are a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, any of those things, active duty or prior service, and you email me before, not after you join, but before you join. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. Put service discount in the subject and send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. I'll send you back instructions for how to sign up and get a discount on an already great price product. With that, let's get into the year that was the episode 1362. Um, you're going to hear things about the Black Death for a while yet. You're going to hear a lot of England and Europe in history segments going forward because there's a couple things going on. One, 100 years war. Um, which there's a segment on today, but it's not what I'm going to talk about, to uh, the Black Death in the world. But here's part of why you, I think you hear so much about Europe. A lot of the other parts of the world were so ravaged by the Black Death and had such poor uh, infrastructure. A lot of places, we don't know what happened. There's not a lot of record during this period of time. As other empires fell apart, there's, there's a big hole in history, as far as I know anyway. Uh, if not, hey, Alex, see if you can find us something outside of the European theater in the next couple of years, if you can, anyway, that's notable and people would be familiar with it anyway. Uh, but the Black Death is here, and uh, again, it's kind of came about 1350, it ravaged everybody, and then it did its thing, and it kind of, sort of kind of waned off, and now it's back. Black Death and the Pierce Plowman. William Langland of Malvern is a clergyman who has written a long complaint about the corruption of the establishment, including his own clergy, lawyers, and nobility. The plague has returned to England and France. The new round of plague is hitting men and children the hardest. Women seem to be in panic, accepting any union simply to produce more children. Hopelessness made, it, hopelessness made its down payment during the previous plague over 12 years ago. Another payment has come again today, and the people are in despair. Can anyone blame them? My take by Alex Shrugged. Pierce Plowman sees the return of the plague as punishment for sin. Certainly he has many examples of sin before him. As brigands attack the innocent, his own clergy takes money for absolution. And the King of England forces himself on the Countess of Salisbury while her husband is away. Middle Ages are fading away and new civilization is taking place. Many good things will come of that change, but for now, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Um, I want to put this in perspective for you. I think that in today's world, today's society, we think of historical events in way too narrow of a timeline. Okay, We don't get it. We, we live in a microwave movie society. In the movie, the apocalypse comes, and then everything's better as soon as it's over. Okay? This was an apocalypse. The Black Death was probably the closest mankind came in recorded history anyway. There is a bigger bottleneck of population, but there's no recorded history of it. But this is probably the closest mankind ever came to being wiped off the face of the earth. The downturn in the world population, specifically Europe, is breathtaking if you look at it on a graph. So about 1350, the plague really hits Europe in earnest. And 
So when do you think the population stopped declining from the Black Death? Just think about this. So it hits, hits again in 1362, so about 12 years apart. And really, by 1362, we'd already been dealing with this for a couple of years. It had already been back two or three years, like 1360, 1361, 1362. It's right there. The graph is a straight line down. It's a straight line down. And it doesn't start the bell curve and taper off in, in loss until about 1375, I'd say. And it hits the bottom in 1400. And it finds a floor in 1400 where it pretty much stays there until about 1410. And it begins its gradual rise upward. And it comes back to pre-plague population levels in 1550. So from 1350 to 1550, the global population pretty much didn't grow at all. It, it, it ran par. But it had a huge drop in between and a bounce back up. And the real return of the population growth doesn't really take on the pre-plague growth until about 1470-ish, and it starts to really tick up about 1510, 1505. 200 years. 200 years for things to return to the way that they were. Let me put this in perspective for you. Many of you are about my age, and you were kids in the 70s. And remember uh, 1976? In 1976, the United States as a nation was 200 years old. That's how long the population was knocked down globally from the Black Death, at least in the, in, in, in the European and Asian hemispheres. Think about that. The entire history of the United States... From 1776 to 1976. That's how long it took for the population to come back. From one disease. From one illness. Because, as we'll see, I'm sure, as Alex continues his uh, segments in history, the Black Death did not only kill directly, it killed indirectly. There were many, and it also limited population indirectly. When you hear this thing like women were taking any men they could just to have more children. You, you, you really have to think about that many people being gone to understand how people would panic. I think we just need to have more kids and hopefully some of them make it. So there's somebody here after I'm gone. I mean, that was the mentality people were in. We've got it easier than we think today, folks. We really do. With that, let's get into your first question for today's show. Hi, Jack. This is Michael from Trafalgar, Indiana. Quick uh, question about diatomaceous furs. Uh, every once in a while, I have... Uh, small pest issues, and uh, I, I uh, use it from time to time, but I am a little bit concerned about the uh, effects on the worm population after it rains. I do heavily mulch, uh, like a lot of folks do in the garden, so I know that the diet tomatoes will set on top of the mulch until it rains, but I also know that the mulch is a primary food source for the worms, and I was wondering about the effects on the worms when it rains wash that diet matrix earth down into the mulch. Thanks, Jack. Love what you do. Thanks. I have to believe if you, you know, took a bunch of earthworms and fully coated them in DE, they, it would not be good for them, that it would dehydrate them and pull moisture out of them. 
Um, that said, they do not have exoskeletons. And the, what DE is to an insect is sort of kind of like volcanic ash. It's these little abrasive things that stick to the exoskeleton and cut into it and, and then dehydrate them. And they can't get it off once it, it gets into their exoskeleton. Uh, worms ha have been largely said to be not be affected at all by DE uh, used appropriately. And I would tend to agree and I would say that if one or two worms picks up a little bit more DE than it should and has a negative effect on its health, the robins are probably eating more of them than you're killing with your DE. So unless you're, you're saturating the ground with it on a daily basis, I wouldn't worry about how it affects worms. You do have to worry about how it affects beneficial insects and pollinators. It'll kill bees. Uh, it'll kill ladybugs. It'll kill ladybug larvae. It'll kill, you know, it'll kill an aphid, but it'll also kill uh, a green lacewing. Uh, it'll kill your spiders. It'll kill everything that's got an exoskeleton dead. Um, that said, it's a very, it's like a snare in that it's an indiscriminate killer. Okay, so you use it. It'll kill anything that comes into contact with it that has an exoskeleton. So bugs and arachnids. But unlike a snare, where if we leave a snare out in the woods and nothing triggers the snare, and it's there in a hundred years, and it's made out of steel. Uh, something could die from it a hundred years from now. DE, as soon as it gets wet, it's pretty much rendered harmless. It's only in its dry form, in a concentrated amount, that gets stuck to the animal. As soon as it gets wet and mixed in with everything else, it, it pretty much can do no harm at that point. I guess it could build up over time, but it doesn't seem to work that way. Remember, this is a natural element. Um... It's it's basically ground up fossilized shell uh, is what it really comes out to. And uh, it's useful for what it's useful for, but as long as you're using it for spot treatments, I'd say great. And try to wean off of that. And re remember, there's a balance with predator-prey relationships in our gardens. If every time we see a, a pest, we're killing it, and we're decimating the population of the pest... We're not giving the predator any incentive to show up. Now, there are certain pests that don't have a lot of predators that we have to maybe take this action with, like squash bugs. I don't know anything that eats a squash bug at all, period. A chicken won't eat a squash bug. I've seen it once or twice. If a chicken eats a squash bug, they eat it one time, they make a horrible noise, and they run away. Um, so a squash bug infestation we might have to deal with, with, with something like a DE. Pretty much everything else, squash bugs, squash vine borers, Uh, blister beetles don't have a lot of predators, so blister be beetles can be a problem. And when they move in a big group, I've seen them just totally devastate something, though they're not generally a big problem. Almost everything else has something that'll kill it. And if we, as long as we're not talking about plague proportions of these things, if we give time for the predator to come and we give habitat for the predator, it'll show up. Uh, but when we worry about your DE for spot applications, let's take another call. Hi, I got a question for Jack. This is Nick calling from Colorado, and I would like to get your take on the idea of relocating to Asia as an entrepreneur. Okay, details. Uh, my wife's an RM, and I'm an engineer, so we do pretty well money-wise, but we really want something more and don't see much of a long-term future in the rat race. So, you know, we want to go into business for ourselves, but we don't really expect our money or our efforts will be treated particularly well here in the U.S., So as a result, we're leaning, heavily leaning to relocate to my wife's original home country in Mongolia, where there's a number of business opportunities open to us that we can act on. 
I feel strange to consider it, especially for my wife who moved to the U.S. many years ago for similar reasons, but we've seen for ourselves personally there's a lot more economic advantages over there than here. Economic, not necessarily overall. I'm not saying that we can't succeed in the U.S., only that we get to reap more rewards for our efforts there. Uh, we do have uh, social family business networks there, so we won't be flying blind. And I've spent a lot of time there myself, so I'm familiar with the differences and hardships. And lastly, we think it might be a good experience for our two young children, you know, challenge them, expand the horizons, maybe help break the teacup kid trend. <laughs> Um, only big advantage that I'm concerned with is, you know, if we have to go back for any reason, getting back to our respective field after a big hiatus might be quite difficult given the unfriendliness of the job market to the unemployed. But, you know, I don't see it as a reason not to be, or I don't see it as a reason to be afraid to try, but it's just something to consider since I like to have backup plans. So what do you think? Shall we go east, young man? Um, all right. Uh, thanks for the show, Jack. Bye. This falls under the I cannot tell you whether you should do this or not category. It's impossible for me to tell you whether or not you should take your family and move from the United States of America to Mongolia. Now, when you hear the word Mongolia, though, and this is where the, the, the real beauty of this question is I can tell you some things to think about. And I can also point out what I've been saying, that there is a belief that America is where everybody that wants to be in business wants to be, and that is not true like it used to be because money goes where it's treated well. We heard the caller use the, the same words right here. You know, is my time and my talent, my effort and my money going to be treated well in the United States? Um, and, and let's do some comparison, shall we? Let, let's just start out with basic income tax. Now, It's true that in the United States of America, if you have uh, almost no income at all, you'll pay almost no taxes. But you, you, you have to be really, really low to get down to there. Um, you have to be living a life that most people don't want to live. And it's, it, it, it's, it's the case that most people are paying an effective tax rate in the United States between 15% and 20%, right? That's that's after deductions and going through all kinds of crap and loopholes and accounting practices and things like that and, and filling out massive tax returns and, 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 and buying a house and deducting the, the taxes and the, the mortgage and things like that. But 15 to 20% is the effective tax rate. Top tax rate is 39.5% in the United States. So the, the, the people that are doing really, really well are paying a 39% tax on some, but not all of the money that they earn. You understand how that works. And the more money you make, generally the more astute you become at divesting of income into expense categories, even if they benefit you. So you end up with an effective tax rate of 15 to 20% for the average American. How does that compare to Mongolia? Well, Mongolia has a tax on the sale of movable property, the sale of stocks and securities, okay, and income from activities, right? So that means all the things that you would do to earn money in a capital gains type of environment with running a business, okay, or what have you, or salary, wages, bonuses, incentives, and other similar employment. All of that's taxed the same at 10%, flat rate for everybody. If you sell immovable property, which in general would be real estate, it is taxed at 
Now, here in the United States, if you own a house and you sell it and it uses primary residence and you're moving to another primary residence, you can make a half a million dollars and not pay a dime on it. But that is not daily living and it's not daily, you know, it doesn't daily impact people. Um, so you're basically paying about half the tax in Mongolia on your income that you do in the United States. And they don't have a Social Security tax. So there's another 7% to 15%, depending on whether you're self-employed or not, that you're not paying. Okay, you got that. Because, see, that's the other thing. You say the marginal tax rate for even an upper-income person in this country is about 20%, and it is. But if that person's self-employed, they're paying another 15%, roughly, by matching their own Social Security up to the Social Security cap. So now you're up at 30 35% versus 10% Mongolia. So straight out of the gate, massive advantage tax-wise goes to Mongolia just from all taxes. Next, Mongolia, as crazy as that sounds, I mean, just like, who was the last time he was like, I want to go to Mongolia, right? I mean, that's where, like, the, the, the golden hordes came from, right? Kublai Khan and uh, Genghis Khan and, you know, it, I got Mongolia. Wait, wait, wait. Anyway, it is the one of the fastest growing economies in the world. Very, very fast growing. Gee, 10% flat tax rate for all in a business-friendly environment, and guess what? Your economy grows. Holy crap. They do have some debt. I think they're outstanding uh, you know, foreign debt, so what they owe other countries. Well, let's start out with their, uh, their debt to GDP ratio, so the debt versus their gross domestic product, um, they, they, that's how they run their debt ceiling. They don't say our debt ceiling is X dollars. They say we'll raise our debt ceiling along with how our economy is growing so we can, we can have more debt if we have more productivity. It used to be 40% uh, back in, in May They actually raised it to a 70% uh, debt-to-GDP ratio, which to make it with round numbers that don't really mean anything to governments but would make sense to you, if the country's gross domestic product was a million dollars a year, they can carry $700,000 in debt. Got that? So how does that compare to the United States and our debt-to-GDP ratio? Well, if I go over to our... Very depressing. The most depressing website that's one of my favorite websites to visit is uh, usdebtclot.org. Like I say right now, our gross debt to GDP ratio in the United States is 107.52%. Meaning that we borrow more every year than we produce. This is not spending versus borrowing. This is production versus borrowing. All right. Or this is, I wouldn't say every year, that we're carrying 107% of our gross domestic product on an annualized basis, right? So our gross domestic product is about $16 trillion. You got that? And our debt's about $17 trillion. Where Mongolia says if we were producing $10 trillion, which are nowhere near, but let's say $10 trillion, that their debt could not exceed $7 trillion in debt. So they have to be producing more than they're borrowing. We again, are, we are we are we have now borrowed 107% of our total productivity of the United States on an on an annualized basis. So with jet to, debt to GDP, they're in better shape than us. 
a lot of their money comes from natural resources, copper and mining and things like that. And the government's able to, through their structure, take a pretty good chunk of that, which is what's funded most of their spending that's not been borrowed money. So they do have, they're not perfect by any means whatsoever. I'm not saying these are, but they're financially a lot more solid than we are right now. And they're treating money better than we are. The, the negative, if there is one, is that in Mongolia, right now, the government is increasing spending more than any time in their history. Their spending is going up every year. And they're, but they're investing it mostly in infrastructure, not social welfare programs. So when you invest in infrastructure, generally you get an ROI. If you look at the investment that the United States put into infrastructure in the 50s under Dwight Eisenhower, there's no, there's no doubt that the money spent on infrastructure in the 50s far more than paid for itself in economic output and tax revenues off of it. So as long as they continue that, they, they should be on a good course for you know, 10, 20 years until everybody's fat and happy and gets lazy. Now, the, here's the thing, though. You said get out of the rat race. Okay. Um, in most Asian countries, the opportunities from a professional standpoint are highly centralized around cities, not the countryside. And the population densities, even in Mongolia, in the population centers, are excessive comparative to anything we know in the United States. Um, think New York City and Chicago and then make it worse. Okay. Compared to something like Dallas or Atlanta, you know, more livable cities that have high populations, but they're well spread out. Um, so think New York City, Chicago, and then make it worse, right? Think Tokyo, right? Think Beijing. And not as many people, but that's not a type of density, even in Mongolia, in, in the popula the heavy population centers, the few that there are. So, That then has to make you ask yourself, you're going to go into business for yourself and your wife's a nurse. Will she plan on working in a hospital or does she plan on going to some sort of individualized business that leverages that skill set or do doing something totally different? If you're going to go into a business that you're going to basically run as an online concern and you have geographic freedom within Mongolia, then this financially, anyway, just purely financially, with how much money you get to keep of what you earn, increases your income by about 10% immediately. Immediately. Is 10% enough to move to Mongolia? She has family there, it sounds like. She's from there. It would be an easier entry for you than other people. And how big is your business going to be? You know, 10% of $100,000 is ten grand. 10% of a million dollars is a hundred thousand dollars. That's a lot of money to give government versus keep. So we have to, you have to look at all of these things that are moving around. But I, I thank you for the, in the end, I can't answer this for you. You have to answer the lifestyle quotient, the things for yourself. The government of Mongolia is sort of kind of like the United States and, uh, Canada and England's governments all mashed together and, and, uh, You know, crapping out a new form of government that's a little different than almost. There's very few nations that actually have a government that you would call what you call Mongolia's government. Mongolia's government is a presidential republic. So you have a president who's elected to four years. The president appoints the prime ministers approved by their version of Congress, the parliament. Um, parties nominate their people for higher office. 
The Prime Minister is the one that actually names the cabinet, the subject to the parliamentary approval, the way that our cabinet's subject to our congressional approval. So it's it's it, it's like U.S. style government, uh, except there's a prime minister in addition to a president, and the president at the executive level has more um, powers that we would call executive uh, order type powers in Mongolia than they do here. So there's, there's more centralized power at the presidency, but you know, so far they seem to be okay. They're also a multi-party system. They're not a two-party system. So there's more choices for voters, and there's a greater overall say for now in Mongolian government uh, with differing views, which can be good or bad depending on which way those views drag the country. But they do not have the same level of protections of individual rights that we do in America, yet they have, it's pretty good, and they seem to stick to what they say, where we seem to say we're better, but yet our government ignores the Constitution when it's inconvenient. From what I can see, and I only looked into this a little bit, with getting this question and going through it yesterday, from what I can see, pretty much, if the government says something in Mongolia that they won't do, They pretty much don't do it, and that probably comes from the fact that the modern Mongolian government was created after um, the fall of communism. Let's just put it that way, throughout the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic and throughout much of the world, and the people there remember that. They remember the socialist state. And they know how much better they have it now. And they are probably doing a better job of guarding against the resurrection of it than we are right here because we've been spoiled for so long. So Mongolia is just one example of the type of thing that I was talking about last week when I said entrepreneurs are not, or actually Monday, not so hip on building businesses in America anymore. Individually, sir, you have to figure out for yourself, but I wouldn't blame you. Oh, there is one high tax. One high tax in Mongolia, 40% on gambling, lottery, and quiz, whatever quiz is, right? So basically, if you game and win money, they tax it high. Money from productivity is taxed very low. Oh, and if you're a writer or a product designer, if you're making royalties and patents and things like that, or you're an uh, athlete or an artist or something like that, so from creation of scientific, literary, and art, Artistic works, invention, product designing, organizing, and participating in sports competitions, art performance, or any other similar activity, you're taxed at only 5% in Mongolia. So it seems like those those are things that generally, I don't see because I don't see patent royalty in there. It makes me think that, but I don't see that in there. Those types of activities generally benefit greater numbers of people, and yet pay the person doing it less money, except the sports competition thing, although it is entertainment. Um, but a lot of these other things, like these artistic things, seem to be things that pay very, very low and uh, have a, a greater social benefit, and Mongolia taxes them lower. Um, I'm not sure I feel about that, because it's kind of like a subsidy, but it's not really. It's just the government taking less money. Um, I don't know. A lot of things that I would have a real problem with here when you're taxing people at 39% of their income, I tend to feel a little less negative about, at least a little bit, when you're only taxing people at 10% of their income and you're treating everybody else pretty much the same. I don't know. It's up to you guys. But uh, those are the things I'd think about. Let's take another call. 
Hey, Jack. This is Clinton in North Ohio. I have a question for uh, Chef Keith Snell. My question is this. I like to make tomato powder, uh, garlic powder, you know, dehydrate and grind up and all that sort of stuff. Things from my garden. The problem is, is that after a while, they the, uh, the contents in the jar kind of, you know, settle down and stick together. So is there a, a natural uh, anti-caking agent that I can uh, preferably make on my own or if I have to purchase uh, that does not contain gluten, as my wife has gluten sensitivities and in general, no one should probably be consuming gluten anyway. But, uh, yeah, that's my question, and uh, I'd be interested in knowing what the answer is. Thank you. It's our first of uh, three questions for the expert counsel. Those news to the show, if you'd like to make a call for the expert counsel, you dial the same number, 866-65-THINK. Then you fire off an email to me, and you say, Hey, Jack, I just made a call for expert counsel member so-and-so. Called you from number XYZ, and uh, then I can find your call and get it sent to the council member, uh, assuming that it's it's audible and can be heard and what have you. Um, and in this case, we have a call here for Chef Keith's No, so let's hear Chef Keith's answer. If you want to know all the members of our council, every show has a listing of our expert council members and the and links to their websites and what they specialize in. So let's go ahead and hear Chef Keith's response to this question. Hey, this is Chef Keith Snow from Harvest Eating. I wanted to answer Clinton's question from Ohio. Now, Clinton, um, really cool stuff that you're making these powders and using all of your you know raw materials like this this is a pretty creative thing to do back in the day when uh, i used to work in restaurants we would make um, mushroom powders from lots of different types of mushrooms and um, for those folks that don't know when you make a powder like a tomato powder or a mushroom powder what have you you're getting a ton of flavor like in the example of the mushroom powder we used to add that to sauces that we would put on you know, steaks and grilled chicken. And that um, punch from the super concentrated mushroom powder was really delicious. And you can also make your own chili powder and things like that quite easily. So, uh, Clinton, your question was about how to keep it from clumping. And uh, I know a few things about this because, as many of the listeners know, there's a, a ton of you guys and gals out there that order the uh, Harvest Eating Spice Blends that you see Jack use. Now, in this product, which you know I consider a commercial product, I choose not to use anti-caking agents. And um, that is the ingredient that would keep things like Parmesan cheese and other spices from caking or clumping. So when you go to try to shake them out of the jar, particularly in a humid environment, you can have a problem and they can clump up a bit. Now, uh, when I formulated my spice blends years ago, uh, I did a lot of research on the other ones that were out in the market. And there were many of them out there that had at least 30% of the net weight um, after you did some digging and, and uh, found out was this cellulose or anti-caking agents. And they make cellulose from many different forms it's basically like a it's a pulp or a uh, fiber product whenever you have uh, vegetable production juices a lot of it comes from the citrus industry those skins um, 
when they're ground up and dried into a powder, they can have this anti-caking effect. So there's lots of different formats um, that manufacturers use to um, build these anti-caking agents, but I didn't like the fact that so much of the product had them in there, and some of them are, are nastier than others. There's a few that aren't so bad. I'm going to point out a few of those now. Now, the super low-tech way to keep your powders from clumping, Clinton, would be just to use some white rice. And if you had a little shake bottle of some sort, you could put you know, some white rice in there. It's not going to be able to be shaken out of the bottle because it'll have, you know, fine little holes. That tends to absorb some moisture. Um, the next choice for me would be potato starch, and you can mix just a little bit of potato starch, and this is something you'll have to play around with because I don't know how much powder you have, but you can start by adding a few pinches of, of it into your powders. It won't really bring any flavor at all, and it will help to keep them uh, flowing nicely. You can get potato starch in just about any supermarket. Uh, if you look in the sort of specialty baking area, there's a brand called Bob's Red Mill, and they sell um, potato starch. Now, if you want to get a little more sophisticated, um, go to a website called Modernist Pantry, and this is where they sell supplies for people interested in molecular gastronomy, which is... Um, you know, the blending of science and, and food. Um, but there's a product there. It's microcrystalline cellulose. And this isn't going to be a more commercial type product. You can get, a, I think, about a pound of it for 8 or $9. So if it were me, I would um, try, just like I said, I'd try the rice. Then I'd go to the potato starch. And ultimately, if you're really into this, um, you're not going to die by eating a little microcrystalline cellulose. So that's how I would do it. But really cool um, thing that you're doing, making these powders. And there's a lot of, like you mentioned, tomato powder. There's a ton of uses for things like that. So uh, hats off to you, Clinton, for being um, so inventive. And uh, lastly, before I leave you folks, I want to thank you for supporting um, not only the Survival Podcast, but also the Harvest Eating Podcast and Harvest Eating in general. So many of you out there are buying uh, our spices and, and uh, reordering them, and I really appreciate that. I wanted to let you know that right now for a limited time, we are offering a 25% discount with the coupon code BEACH, like summer, B-E-A-C-H. So if you come over to HarvestEating.com and go to the store, and uh, check out our spices. Um, this beach coupon code is even a bigger deal temporarily than the TSP um, MSB deal. So I wanted to mention that to you guys. Thank you all so much. And Clinton, I hope that helps. Take care. Hi, Jack. This is Alan down in Houston. Look, I keep hearing you uh, mention Yopon Holly. And I wanted to uh, call in being from Houston where insane amounts of this plant grows and offer some uh, useful info on this plant and why, it, why it's actually an extremely useful crop to have. Um, first off, Yopon holly actually is uh, native to the U.S., southeastern U.S. It grows in 11 states from Virginia all the way to uh, Texas and Oklahoma, pretty much the entire Gulf Coast and lower Atlantic this plant grows. Um, so uh, in addition to that, it makes a great privacy edge. It's actually a very dense 
plant is evergreen. It doesn't lose that ability in the winter like some plants might. Um, so this is incredible uh, for doing around the edge of your property, uh, maybe 10 or 15 feet thick. It's, it's almost impenetrable with the uh, density of its growth if you do it in that way. It makes it really difficult anyway to get through. Um, the most incredible thing about this plant is actually the highest caffeinated plant in North America. Some people say the only caffeinated plant that is native to North America. So you can actually make a tea out of this. It, in my opinion, it's far superior to anything you get at the store that would come from the uh, Camellia sinensis plant, which is what green, black, white, and oolong tea are from. Um, it's not as bitter. It doesn't require as much sugar to make palatable. And in my opinion, it tastes better. So the way that you would go about doing this is to collect some leaves uh, and that same day or immediately early on the next day, you would either roast or dehydrate these leaves. They don't keep very long, is the reason. Um, to dehydrate, that's pretty simple and straightforward. To roast, you might want to uh, you can either do this by sautéing it in a hot saucepan, or you can actually put them on a cookie sheet, throw them in the oven, maybe 300, 350, somewhere in there. doesn't really matter. The main thing you want to do is keep an eye on the texture of the leaves. When they start to get a little bit brown and crispy to the point where they actually uh, start to break at the touch, this is when they're perfect. And then you can make a nice, loose wheat tea. You can throw it in a French press, throw it in a coffee filter, and make a little uh, homemade tea bag. There's a lot that you can do with it. And the uh, I would say the caffeine content, depending on how it's prepared, is upward of coffee. It's got more caffeine. Um, what you can do is uh, just prepare it in this way, and it actually unlocks the uh, caffeine. It makes it water-soluble. So there you go. That's a, uh, that's a homegrown tea and coffee substitute that can work when times get tough and when they don't. Enjoy. Peace out. Well, um, initially, I was very, very excited about this uh, call, and I, I still am to a degree. Uh, I want to bring up something very, very important for you to consider if you're thinking of using Yapon Holly is a tea, and that is that there is a mimic out there. A lot of things that we forage for are very, very unique. It is very difficult to confuse a dandelion with anything else in the world, and anything that remotely looks like it's probably safe anyway. Um, this is not so with Yapon holly. There is an invasive species, and some species legitimately are invasive, and, and this is one. And I, I would say that it's invasive because it provides none of the benefits of the very plant that it looks like mimics and displaces. And that is Chinese privet. Chinese privet looks so much like Yapon holly that when you learn that it is toxic, as in, yes, poisonous and can kill you, it's almost scary how much the two look apart alike, even though it is not that difficult to tell them apart if you know what you're looking for. The big thing is, remember, the, the caller said that um, Yapon holly has caffeine. So think of chaos and caffeine being the same. Yapon holly, the leaves are in random patterns. There's no real discernible pattern to, uh, to Yapon holly. Um, leaves grow this way, that way. They're not paired up. 
Um, privet grows in what's known as a pinnate pattern, which means each leaf has like a buddy on the other side of the stem growing the exact opposite of it. So they're in pairs. And I've got some links up that you can take a look at. Green Dean on Eat the Weeds has a great uh, piece on Yapon Holly and a great piece on using all holly. I didn't know this, but many hollies are usable as teas. Um, but this Chinese privet is absolutely toxic. And I've got a link also in the show notes to Foraging Texas. And you can look on Foraging Texas and you can see the difference between privet and uh, holly. And it's, it's, it's pretty substantial. And the reason I'm belaboring this so much is I've mentioned I have a bunch of Yapon holly in the back of my property for a long time now. When I heard this call, I went, yeah, I'm not putting anything in my body without knowing for sure. Uh, because I've also heard of people feeding this stuff to animals and having them eat it and die. Marjorie Wallacraft, I'm wondering now if this is what she actually fed to her rabbit. She said she heard they would eat Yapon holly, gave them some and they did, gave them too much of just the Yapon holly and they died. And I'm wondering if she gave them Chinese privet. Because privet is invasive throughout Louisiana and Texas in particular. Um, it's gone wild. It displaces Japan. And all of that stuff that I thought was Japan holly down on my uh, back back part of my property and into my neighbor's property that smells so good, has all those beautiful white flowers on it, it's privet. It's, uh, I'm with 99.9% certainty that it's not Japan, but privet. Uh, the leaves do appear to be in uh, pairs of opposite pinnate structure. So that means if I had just heard this and thought, yay, and went down there and got a big old handful of that stuff in, uh, in some hot water and drank it, it might have tasted okay, and I may have either made myself very, very sick or killed myself. And it is, you know, very important that when you're putting anything in your body that you, you are doing for the first time, because you've read something or you've heard something, that you do deeper research, and if you doubt it one-tenth of one percent, don't do it. Find an expert. Find somebody that knows that can give you a clear identification. Because I'll tell you this. there is I've found for you guys the best side-by-side -side comparison of Yapon and Privet that I can find. I can't find a really, really definitive good one. I really can't. I mean, somebody out there that knows plants... That knows where you can find your pawn and privet. Really should do up a page with multiple pictures, the whole plant, down to the berries, down to the flowers, down to the leaves. Very, very clear photography. Larger photography than on this, this foraging site. Um, it was good enough, but man, I'll tell you, you could still make the mistake. You, you could still make the mistake, and that's, that's a little bit scary. Uh, that there's a plant out there that, that grows in the same environments, literally displaces the plant that you're looking for. So it could have been there one year, and the next year it's been taken over by this privet stuff that's toxic. And I'll have to pop off an email to Marjorie and ask her to check into that. It may be very well what killed her rabbits. I didn't know. But what I am excited about is holly being usable as tea. Uh, Yapon holly is not hard to find. You can find it lots of wild stands of it. And um, there's a lot of uh, cultivars that have been made specifically for ornamental purposes and all that are the same species. It should grow really well here. Um, I do have some tea plants in, some typical tea plants, some stuff from Russia, actually, from Sochi, Russia. Uh, tea that is the hardiest uh, tea in northern climates that there is, that I'm going to see if it's going to work. But knowing that Yapon will serve that same role and have no problems with the climates here, 
I'm going to get some, bring it in, and plant it. But again, please, please be careful when trying things internally um, until you are 100% sure that you know what you're dealing with. Again, one-tenth of one percent, you're not sure, don't do it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Rich from the Lehigh Valley with a teacup report. My wife, who's a sixth-grade teacher, was complaining to me last night about a student of hers who got a 33 on his final math test. She said, I can let the kid use an information card, and he's still got a 33. Never hearing the term information card before, I asked her what that meant. And she said, well, I let the struggling learners in my class take a white index card and write any information that they might find beneficial to help them when they take a test. So I said, you mean a cheat sheet? And she rolled her eyes and said, well, that's what some of the other teachers call it, but we call it an information card. So take care. Bye-bye. Really? Please pause for a moment and listen to the sound of my brain right now. Um, yeah, I, I think my freaking internal components of my head just exploded in a fiery blast of multiple concussions. I, I really do. I, I, I just can't even believe that I just heard that. Sir, I, I'd like you to, with all respect, have your wife, and I will be respectful of her in my critique here, but I would love her to listen to just this segment, including your question and my mind exploding, and then what I have to say here. Um, you've got to be kidding me, ma'am. I'm sorry. I know you think you're helping. You are not helping. You are not helping. You are not helping. You are not freaking helping. Especially what you're doing is you're legalizing cheating for the people that most need to learn. You're handing them off to the next grade if they're competent enough to, to cheat when you legalize it. There, and, and teachers, aren't we all supposed to be fair? We're all supposed to be fair and equal and nice. You're letting the weak student cheat? You're letting the weak... You have to be kidding me. It's not an information sheet. And the reason other teachers call it a cheat sheet or a crib sheet is because that's what it is. Testing a student's knowledge with a test is to see if they've learned and retained the knowledge so that it can be applied later in life. Okay? Plain and simple. That's what it's for. You haven't learned and retained the knowledge if you need to write it down on a little piece of paper and then look at it while you're taking the test. Um, and the kid got a 33. The kid got a 33. Do you know why? Doesn't care. The kid doesn't care about passing. Does not care. Doesn't want to do the work. It doesn't want to learn. And I'm sorry, ma'am, you're not helping. Because as long as you're saying, well, you know what you can do? You can get an index card, write down all this stuff. The child has no reason to care. We're destroying... Our children's lives right now actively in this country. And I'm not going to be hard on this lady because I, I guarantee you that she did not come up with this all by herself. She went in there one day, you know what I'll do? 
This is some bullshit that's inside this school system that sanctioned this crap. And it's got to stop. It's got to go. Whoever started that practice and said, you know what we should do, and we'll teach other people to should be fired. Fired now, this second, yesterday. Back charged in their paycheck. Whoever came up with this practice, from the day that they instituted it forward, not only should they be terminated, they should have to pay back the public education sector the money they stole from the people of their district by sanctioning cheating on tests. Fired. This is just, but as mad as I am, do you think that my mind really explodes with this? Because... Of this. No. It's all of it. Not keeping score in games so nobody's feelings get hurt. You know, common core crap that was written by one guy because he wanted to equalize white privilege. Whatever the hell that's supposed to be. You know? I'm Personally, as a white male today, there is no thing I could be and be more demonized by media and the general down, down-brain public than a white male. I am the most evil thing on planet Earth for my skin color and my sex. Two things I have no control over. So there's that. There's Easter egg hunts where parents put the freaking eggs in the middle of a parking lot because the kids can't be challenged to look for the eggs. And now there's Easter egg hunts I hear where they have blue and red and green and yellow and every kid gets a color so no one kid gets too many freaking eggs. You got people in my own state of Texas a couple years ago wanting to build a million dollar bridge across a freaking ditch that was four inches deep so kids could get across the ditch when they were already getting across the ditch. Not only did they not need a bridge, but the reason we needed a million-dollar bridge was to comply with multiple homeowners associations. A million dollars for a bridge across a ditch? you got to be kidding me. A ditch that doesn't need a bridge? you got to be kidding me. We're destroying our children's lives. Do you got that, America? We're destroying the lives of our children. We're destroying the futures of our children. If children cannot fail, they cannot know success. If children cannot fail, they can never know success. One cannot know success without knowing failure. When One cannot know victory without knowing loss. One cannot know the value of hard work until one deals with the consequences and defeat of apathy, slothness, and laziness. Our species was designed to optimize itself through challenge, and we're removing every challenge our children face, and then saying, look at them, they're all lazy and apathetic. No, you're lazy and apathetic, America, for making them that way. You have trained the results that you're seeing and bitching about. This shit has to stop. And parents, if you hear shit like this in your school district, take somebody to task for it. Have somebody's head over. Better yet, do the right thing. If there is any way that you can do it, get your child into a private education system or into a homeschool or a homeschool cooperative or anything out of this system. This system is done. It's dead. It sucks. It's based on an 1880s model of Prussian education designed to program children to be cogs in a machine. And they can't even get that right anymore. 
It is an archaic, dying system, and it is currently digging its own grave. Extract your children from it, and if you're a teacher in it, defy the system, challenge your children, ask them to do more, don't give them a freaking cheat sheet because they're weak. Force them to study harder so that they'll become strong. And if you're not willing to do that, I'm sorry, and I know I said I wouldn't you know, insult this person, but it's not personal. I'm serious to everybody. If you are a teacher today and you are not willing to buck the system where it's wrong and you're not willing to challenge your students to do something else, find something else to do because you're not helping. You might be well-intentioned, but you're not helping. It's summertime. If you're a teacher and you hear my words today, upset, agree, I don't care. Use this summer and think about what I've just said. If we do not challenge our children and let them know failure, they cannot know victory. If we do not let children experience the results of apathy, they cannot know the virtue of hard work. If we give an advantage to those who are weakest, we cement them for life into weakness permanently. And I'm done. Let's go to something else before I snap a gasket completely. Hi, Jack. This is John from the Houston area. I'd like to propose an alternative to your suggestion and it's a waste of time voting in national elections. Instead of being politically agnostic, as I believe you put it, perhaps we should be apolitical or anti-political. In that, we always vote for the challenger. Perhaps this will cause enough disruption in the system that liberty and freedom may gain a foothold in the lives of ordinary citizens. If the lobbyists and other parts of the machine have to re-indoctrinate a new official uh, every four years or so, it may be disruptive. Similar to your suggestion that encrypting every email would be disruptive to those that are in the surveillance systems. So regardless of their ideologies, just vote for the challenger. No other reason than to be an obstacle. Anyway, just some thoughts. Uh, I'd like your opinion of that. Take care. Um, yeah, except it doesn't work. It's, it's not a new idea. It's called vote the bums out. It's, it's a idea that's been bantered around for at least 30 years to my knowledge. And it's just vote for, vote against the incumbent in every election, vote against the incumbent, but, and it'll never happen. And, and let me use a pop culture example of why. Um, and while this was going on, I was very, very involved with web marketing and I, I, I used web marketing to do a lot of things, um, to make money, um, long before the days of the Survival Podcast, and I knew that pop culture had a lot of traffic. So I, I saw this guy on this show, American Idol, named Chris Daughtry, and this is a site I made years and years ago. And I made a website about him, and I started chronicling what he did on American Idol, and it was called ChrisDaughtryFans.com. If you look at it, it still looks terrible. And you go, well, why would a guy like Jack Spear go as smart as he is chronicle Chris Daughtry? Um, because I made about $45,000 that year off that one little shitty site. That's why. Made me lots of money because lots of people went to that site, clicked on ads, and back then you could make really good money with something called Google AdSense. So in my studies of online stuff, I kind of kept an eye on Idle even after I stopped messing around with that and did things that were more productive for society. And I watched something come up called VoteForTheWorst.com, and this was a group of people who decided that, hey, you know what, um, what we need to do is we need to fix a problem with American Idol. And they, they, what they define that problem is this, that they take these this group of finalists and about half of them suck. They have no business being there. There's plenty of people uh, who, who are better than they were that don't get to the finals. And this is all about the formula of non-reality TV and putting these six crappy people 
up with these six decent people with only one or two really good solid people because it's all about the making of an image. And they, while it's not completely predetermined who's going to win, you can bet that they know who the final four, five, or six are going to be. Right from the beginning, the whole way through, it's not really set up as a competition. And they said, well, we're going to fix this with a form of popular protest. We'll come up with a website, and everybody that is part of our web community will call in and vote for the very worst performer that night. And by doing so, we won't make them win, but we'll save them from losing. And we'll constantly vote for the worst and keep the worst people around as long as possible until Idol stops doing this crap. Well, ironically, it, it, it actually seemed to have an effect, and you could actually see it work if you watched what they were doing, and you also watched it fall apart and stop working as they got up into the final five or six, which is where it would stop working anyway, because the natural voting overtook the artificial weight of the worst. And as you got closer and closer down to four to whatever, last bit, had no effect at all as far as they could discern. Why? Because the closer you get to picking between two, the more, po the more polarizing the natural vote's going to become. And what that means is when we look at our elections on a national level, dead people win elections. Dead people win elections. It, it's, I'm not making it up. It really happens. There's a campaign going on. One guy dies. He's dead. People vote for the dead guy over the guy that has a pulse. Now, if this was enlightened voting, we'd like to have no one, please. I'd get it, but that's not what they're doing. They don't even know the guy's dead. They don't care. One has a D, one has an R, I'm going to pick one. This is how most voters vote. And what you're asking to happen is enough people that believe in the, the at least the marketing of the Republican Party to vote for a Democrat. And then you're asking in the next cycle for enough people to believe the marketing of the Democratic Party to vote for a Republican. And I also would tell you that I think that the effect would be very, very minimal. Very, very minimal. Presidents generally get the most done in their first term anyway. It's just the facts. If you look at it, you'll see that Obama got a lot done in his first term. And halfway through the second term, which is where we're headed to, you're a lame duck. So... If you had the Congress completely gutted, right, so the House was gutted every two years, and the Senate was gutted by a third every every two years, and wholly every six, would it have an effect? It might. It might. Now, see, here's the thing. The, the, the party dues system still keeps whoever wins accountable to the corporatocracy, right? So that's still there, but if there was no old guard there, to enforce the party due system. If everybody showed up and there was nobody there at all from the previous session, then maybe. Maybe. But it ain't going to happen. It isn't going to happen. It is not going to happen. Period. The people of this country won't vote for a good candidate. Right? And if you won't choose a good candidate then you're not going to turn your back on the marketing that's led you to choose a shitty one. Because the, the American people have now been conditioned to vote for shitty candidates. We expect our candidate, if we're still voting in these things, to, to suck. We expect, well, Mitt Romney sucks. Of course he sucks, but he's better than Obama. And even the people that vote for Obama 
right? Now, there was the whole Superman image and the, you know, walk on water crap and all that led to the first turn, right? And it was like Bush was so villainized that people were willing to believe any pile of bullshit and the whole Cinderella story and everything else. But by the time we got to the last election, by the time we got to the first term, most of that crap was gone except from the, you know, the unicorn farters, right? But... So, but the, the average Obama voters like, well, this guy's not good. He's not what we thought he was. But God, look at Romney. He's worse. We expect our candidates to be lousy. We actually can't accept that there could be a candidate that actually believed in the Constitution of America. We would think there's something wrong with them. Do you understand? I mean, that's the truth. Like, if you've been eating garbage your whole life. Candy, fructose corn syrup, Coca-Cola, whatever. And if somebody puts a plate of food in front of you, this is 100% natural. You know, a natural tea that's not sweetened with sugar, that's just maybe a little bit of honey, a little bit of lemon, and, and good quality food. The person, you would think the person would be like, oh my God, this is amazing. No, the person that's lived on a 100% diet of American garbage their whole life will turn their nose up at quality cooked whole natural food the first couple times they see it smell it touch it try to eat it i don't like it now if they'll start eating it give it a chance and eat it for a while they'll go wow this is this is wow how did i eat that and then oh man i missed that that junk food though and you go and you eat some junk food you go that tastes like that tastes like garbage i don't want that anymore that's our political system We're not going to vote the bums out because we expect the bums. And we actually think our bums better than the other guy's bum. This country doesn't need some kind of scheme where we just flip-flop who's in power every two to four to six years. That's not what we need. We need the country to, at minimum, be run by the Constitution that founds its law. And the only way that can happen is for the American people to give a shit, and they don't. As long as they don't, if you want to make something happen, look inside the borders of your state and your county. And maybe you can get something done. Well, keep voting for those idiots that are running for president. Keep sanctioning evil and see how that works out for you. Anyway, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Matt from Michigan. Um, I was listening to your uh, episode about World War II combatives with the two guys from Canada. That was a really good episode. I listened to it twice. Um, in the past... I found a book that I read called Get Tough. It's a really thin paperback. It goes through a lot of those principles. And um, some of those principles are also taught at those target-focused training, live training seminars, which I thought was really good. I've been doing some martial arts for a while, Wing Chun, and I'm thinking of adding some of those that kind of training in to, you know, for to help with practical use and self-defense. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just a really good episode overall, and thanks for it, and thank you again for your show. Bye. You know, when I heard that name, Get Tough, I looked that book up and I was like, I, I remember that book being sold in like magazines like Black Belt and Outdoor Magazines and Soldier of Fortune when I was like a little kid. I, I'm like, I know. And I looked it up and that book was published in 1979 by Paladin Press. And it's okay. It, it I, I think the techniques in it, the reason... That they're good is they open the mind to the fact that everything doesn't have to look pretty and like it's on TV. I, I think that's really the most advantage to that. 
Palette Impressed, by the way, has just an amazing storehouse of knowledge. They're a company that figured out the Internet when the Internet figured itself out, but was around way before the Internet. And, and you know, doing back-of-the-book marketing and, and, and magazines, like I said, like Black Belt and Soldier of Fortune and things like that. And, by the way, they're an MSB supporter, and they offer a really great discount for you guys if you're interested in anything. And they still sell that old book from 1979. It's still available. It's pretty cool that that's still available. Um, I want to say a little bit about martial arts as a whole. When you start talking about something like Wing Chun, Wing Chun something that I, I played around with. We even actually used to do almost like a game with Wing Chun, like slaps. Remember slaps where you put your hands, and then you had to sit there and wait for the other person to go, and then had to try to get out of the way. We do a game with Wing Chun, and it goes in series. So it starts out with one-to-one -one motion. So the two people stand in an opposing stance, wrists against each other. One strikes, the other blocks. And then you go back, and then one, the other person strikes, and the other one blocks. And the blows are all to the body, to the torso. So above the waist, between the shoulders, below the throat. But you, you go with full contact. Um, And that's really a great exercise. And then you go to a, 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 a two to two ratio, which is a strike, a block, and then a return strike and a return block. And this is at full speed. You can start out a little bit slower to learn some of the techniques, but it, and you can go up as many times as you want, but usually going to three to three is about as three to three to four to four is about as high as anyone wants to go. One to one is actually where you learn a lot about yourself and a lot about understanding motion and movement and anticipation. And, Martial arts as a whole, I think, are largely misunderstood because everyone wants to know what's the best martial art. Martial arts really are not about making it so that two people can climb in a ring and fight with each other. They're about understanding yourself and fighting and your body as a weapon so that you can survive if you're attacked. And the reality, like we said on that show and I've said on other shows about martial arts, is generally speaking, two dedicated, disciplined martial artists never fight with each other unless it's in a ring in a sporting competition. Because they don't cause trouble. They don't start fights. They don't engage in conflict. Generally, the martial artist who uses their technique in real-world confrontation um, is in law enforcement. That's, that's, that's the primary place that it's actually used on the street intentionally is in law enforcement. Because you're dealing with people who naturally um, need to be restrained or need to be controlled. Uh, law enforcement... I guess you'd, you know, I consider, you know, prison, uh, prison guards, uh, jail, jail, jail enforcement agents, et cetera, uh, to also be in law enforcement. So I'd say that's, that's the, the absolute number one place that it's used. Is it used in the military? Some, but not much. I mean, I, I love the guys we had on from Wolf Combatives and, you know, he talked about the major that he, you know, flipped the knife out at and the guy falls off his seat and, you know, that I just got you throw. But that's just not how the battlefield normally works. I mean, there's been some edged weapon combat. Um, in, in modern times, but the reality is that most of the time when there's, there's conflict in the military, it's somebody shooting at you and you're shooting back at them. So it happens, but it's not anywhere near to the level that you would expect. Um, you know, maybe some covert operative type stuff goes on where somebody's subdued quietly and things like that, but in day to day battlefield confrontations, you know, you shoot somebody if you have ammo. That's all there is to it. Um, The big thing with martial arts, though, like what I like about martial arts like Wing Chun or even going into softer styles like Tai Chi is the mental exercise, the physical exercise. And I think that we shouldn't lose that solely to the combative size, right? So there's, there's combative training and then there's martial arts as a true art form. 
as a true study of how the body moves. And I think the person that does both will be more permission, more, uh, more effective long term if all things are equal than the person that does one to the exclusion of the other. And when I say all things being equal, here's what I mean. I could study Sistema for the next 10 years. I could live in the gym. And Val's about 10 years older than me, my teacher. But Val, not just the number of years he has. Val was an Olympic athlete. Okay, Val was recruited into the KGB. The CIA never came knocking at my door. Val has an innate ability that I do not have. Right? And if Val had learned Krav Magra, he would still be deadly as hell. Right? Versus Sistema. If he just happened to grow up in Israel instead of the Ukraine, he would he'd end up in Israeli, you know, um, Israeli training in, in, you know, in their, you know, covert or whatever, um, or elite troops or whatever they have. You know, he would have been very, still at the top, you know, 1% of practitioners in the world, to totally overall. And I think this is where the silliness in martial arts comes from. Well, the Wing Chun guy got in the ring with the American Karate guy, and the Wing Chun guy won, so Wing Chun's better. No, the guy that knew Wing Chun was better than the guy that knew American Karate. Because I could probably go find a guy in a biker bar that just beats people up because he's a piece of shit who would be able to beat up either one of those guys. And I could probably go find a guy from Wing Chun or a guy from American Karate that could beat that biker guy up. There is a certain amount of this stuff that's about the guy's size and strength, ability, determination, and just an innate, natural ability and talent from an athletic standpoint. And when we say that's not true, we do a disservice to martial arts. You know, when we say things like, you know, it's, 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 it doesn't matter how big the guy is. You can use his own strength against him. Okay, sure. I'll find some guys that, you know, if you try that with, it's not going to end well for you. It's really not. I mean, I, I can I can show you some guys that are you know six 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 eight, three hundred fifty pounds. They they don't lift weights. They throw hay bales around. And and if you're a hundred fifty pound guy, you're not taking on that guy. And if if that wasn't true, we wouldn't have weight classes in competitive combat sports. We just have anybody, and you know, we even have some place where they have unlimited. Like any anybody can that wants to. There's never a 160 pound guy jumping into that ring with a 400 pound guy. It ain't gonna happen. Now, does that mean there's no 160 pound guy that can take on no 400 pound guy? No, that's also being ridiculous. Of course there is. There's 400 pound people who are ready to fall over and die, and there's 160 pound guys that are world class fighters. But in the end, physical size and strength does matter. Natural ability matters. Because two people go to the same dojo and study under the same sensei and advance in belts at almost the same rate, and they're not equal. You put them in the ring, one will win the majority of the time. It's very seldom that two people are truly that equally matched. Where one's not going to be dominantly victorious, whether you're playing for points or playing for a TKO. Doesn't matter. There is innate ability. There are certain things that would prohibit some people from ever being a world-class competitive fighter. In my case, there's no way I could. None. Wouldn't matter if I had spent my whole life training. I would never be a good competitive fighter. And I'll tell you why. In competitive fighting, 
the other guys and their coaches and their trainers watch video of you. It would take them about 13 tenths of a second to figure out that I have very poor vision in my left eye and develop strategies that would, would, would capitalize on that. And if you put two guys that are fairly equal together, and one guy has 2200 vision in one eye and 2020 in the other eye, and the other guy has 2020 in both eyes, the guy with the weaker eye is probably going to lose. Doesn't he mean he can't beat a guy that has perfect vision if they're not almost equal, right? But if they're almost equal, and especially with the foreknowledge of the weakness, whether it's a visual weakness, whether it's a leg that's failed over time, and there's a weakness in a certain knee or a certain spot that can be attacked, all of these things play out. And when we say in martial arts that these things don't matter, we're lying. We're lying. When we tell a person, if you learn this art, it won't matter if the person weighs 100 pounds more than you. We're lying. If it's 100 pounds of muscle, let's call it muscle, bone, and frame, it's going to matter. It's going to matter. You might be better able to look out after yourself, and you might be able to equalize things a little bit, but a guy that outweighs you by 100 pounds who's in good shape is a tough nut to crack. Something we need to keep in mind when we hear all of these super claims about any art. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's my own preferred art of Sistema. I don't care if it's Krav Maga, which I think is wonderful. I don't care if it's World War II Combatives, which I think is great, too. I don't care what it is. I think in the end... There are certain people who have just this natural ability, and you've got to find other ways to equalize it other than with a hold or a throw or a strike. Let's take another call. Oh, by the way, a lot of times that equalization is what you do between your ears. So let's stop giving our children cheat sheets. They need that brain matter between their ears to work at a high level. Hi, Jack. Adrian from Canada again uh, calling uh, for a question for expert panel member John Pugliano, uh, there's been some talk in the uh, alternative media, you could say, say the zero hedge, about uh, very low interest rates and perhaps even negative interest rates. Would John be able to touch on that? Is it possible or is it probable? And if uh, such a situation occurs in the future, any tips on how uh, we may be able to uh, mitigate the situation? Thanks. Have a great day. With that, let's see what uh, John Pugliano has to say about uh, interest rates, specifically negative interest rates. This is John Pugliano with Investable Wealth, and I'm answering Andrew's question on low or negative interest rates. Well, where to put your money in a case like that? Let's look at two scenarios. One, is it is this driven by real market conditions of deflation, or is this being driven by uh, central bank, Federal Reserve policy? If it's driven by actual market uh, market uh, dynamics, then really the best place to be would be in cash. The reason that the rates would be low or negative would be because you're in a deflationary environment where every day, every month, the prices are dropping. They're becoming lower. You think of this in terms of electronics, computers, uh, tablets, smartphones. They, you know, with Moore's Law, they always get better and faster. And so you know that the next model is either going to be less expensive or it's going to cost the same price, but it's going to give you more value. It's going to give you more bells and whistles. So you, so in electronics, you don't, you don't rush out and buy what you don't need. You wait until you actually need it and then you buy because it's always going to be cheaper. It's not, you know, it's not going to appreciate. Um, so that's what you want to do in a deflationary environment with your cash. You want to hold on to it because most asset classes are going to be going down in value. Real estate, stocks, they're all going to get cheaper next month. 
even precious metals in most cases in deflation will either stay the same or go down in value. Um, the only times that when I've looked and tried to study this in history that I've seen precious metals go up in a deflationary environment are when there's extreme fear, when it's not only um, deflationary, but there's also fear like uh, political unrest, things of that nature. It's the fear that's driving the precious metal up, not the, not the de- deflationary nature of it. So, and then even if you put your money into a bank, and let's just say they took one percent, they, they they charged you half a percent interest to hold your money, which I don't think that would have happened. But just for our example, say that it did, and let's say that in, that deflation is deflating one percent a year, where you're still making half a percent on your money by keeping it in the bank. It would be very safe. You know, you were going to be able to get it back, and so that's why someone with a lot of money may choose to, even though they were having a negative interest rate, they still may choose to keep it in the bank just because they know it's protected. And that would obviously be if you had. Millions and millions of dollars, not, you know, not something that you could easily put in a safe deposit box or under your mattress. Now, the other side of this is what happens if it's not really market-induced, but it's artificially uh, created by the central bank uh, for the, the Federal Reserve, for example. In that case, what what the government is going to tell you is that there's no inflation, but you know that there really is, right? Like kind of like the environment we're in now. They tell you there's no inflation. But we're paying, you know, three dollars and eighty cents a gallon for gasoline. Um, you know, hamburgers selling for five dollars a pound. So food, energy, real estate, all these things are going up, even though they tell you there's no inflation. And so you know that that's the way you would know that it's not a market-driven low interest rate. It is a a central bank-induced one. And the strategy there would be different. In that case. You would want to look for whatever asset classes are being favored by the Federal Reserve's policy or by the uh, government administration's taxing, um, you know, fiscal pol- policies or regulatory policies. And so, in the United States, through this last recession and recovery that we've come through, we you can look at energy policy, for example. We know that the Obama, Obama administration was very much favoring. Renewables. So even though there were a number of high-profile solar energy companies that went out of business, if you look at that sector, some did incredibly well. Uh, same way with with uh, real estate and the banks coming out of the recession, people were worried that the banks were going to fail, and so the stocks plummeted. But the Federal Reserve's policy of lower interest rates and th- their stimulus money um, kept the banks liquidated. As a result of that. They didn't go out of business, and they also kept interest rates low so that the real estate would uh, prices of real estate would rise, which again helps the banks' uh, outstanding loans and mortgages, and helps their balance sheet that way. And so, again, a good good asset classes to invest it in in this last recession or recovery would have been bank stocks first, and then real estate second. Now, of course, this was perfectly easy to predict looking backwards with 2020 hindsight. But when you're in the heat of the situation, it's always much more difficult. Um, the next time we go through something like this, it will be um, it will be hard to tell. And the problem is that the pattern is always the same. So you know that the um, the you don't want to fight the Fed, and you know that whatever government favored industry or asset class is the one that's going to benefit. The problem is that although the pattern remains the same, the players change. So you're, it's not always going to be the same group of uh, companies or industries that benefit. And that's why you have to have situational awareness and apply. Just learn the basic principles and then apply them to that particular situation. Andrew, I thank you for your question. I hope that uh, gives you the answer you were looking for. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano, Investable Wealth. Hi. 
Hi, Jack. You said you wanted to see a show by American TV that showed the wild, wild western frontier without all the gunslinging and everything, like it really was. We had that show. It's called Little House on the Prairie. And it was one of America's favorites, apparently. Well, it, you know, there's some truth to that. Um, there was a lot of... Uh Kid stuff, drama, goings on in there that, you know, I don't know whether they, uh, they actually depicted it enough as to the toughness of what it would have been like uh, there and the toughness of the children. I can tell you the kids from the time frame, you're looking at 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, kids were tough. Um, I can tell you kids in the coal region of Pennsylvania in the 1970s and 80s when I was living there, um, would make a lot of the teacups cry. Really, really fast, and not in trying to, just in the way that they handled themselves, in the way that they expected other people to be able to handle themselves. I'm not talking about being bullies. I'm just talking about the generalized toughness. And I just have to believe that the kids of this time, uh, in places like these things were depicted, were were tougher than even you know coal region kids from the 70s and 80s. Um, let's. I'd actually like to tell you a little bit about. With that point there by Carson, what's true and what's not true to the original, the Little House on the Prairie book series began with a with a book called Little House in the Big Woods, um, which was uh, written by Laura Ingalls Wilder. The name is right, Laura Ingalls and the Ingalls family, um, and it it starts in Wisconsin. Starts in Wisconsin. It is based on their actual life and. They end up moving in the second book, which is what's called Little House on the Prairie, to Kansas. Um, so those are the areas that those first two books in the series, which much of the whole concept of the the TV series derived itself from. In the in the TV series, the family lived in a place called Walnut Grove, Minnesota, which I'm not sure is real or not. But Minnesota is very different from Kansas, um, very very different. <laughs> Uh, and there's no, I don't, I never saw the movie, honestly. So I don't know if there's any hearkening back to leaving the, the, you know, the big woods of Wisconsin at all, or th- that kind of concept of moving out into a more agricultural farm type environment. But I will tell you, I've never read the books in full. I remember as a kid getting a copy at a library or something, a little house in the big woods. And I remember, I think it was the first chapter. I read a few chapters of this book where what Laura was talking about was her father making bullets, not reloading out, making, you know, musket balls. And how he was pouring the lead and striking it off and how he would drop them into a cloth and how that was so shiny she wanted to touch it, but if you did, you got burned. Um, that's a bit different than the Charles Ingalls I remember from the television series. Though, I have to say that In losing shows like Little House, shows from the 70s and 80s, I think we lost a lot of what what made America America in the minds of many of people of my generation and preceding generations. Um, it makes me think of other shows that are totally disjointed from this concept, right? So you would think that a show like, remember there was a show about a, a black family and the parents were named James and Florida. I think they took place in Chicago or New York. In the ghetto, right? The show was called Good Times. And it was in the second or third season that James' character went away and he died. And the family was always struggling financially and economically. And it took 
a true and humorous look at the disparity between the black and white white races in America, specific to the time a lot. I think a lot of people who would watch that show today would actually see it as racist. I think a lot of people that would watch that show um, today that aren't familiar with the time frame, younger people, that would just go, that's not the way things are, that's not the way people perceive things, and they just don't know what the 70s were like. Um, when there was still a lot of racial tension, when you know the, the, we had started doing things like busing children to cause integration against common sense, honestly, and there was there was a lot of you think there's racial tension today, but if you weren't around in like 1980, you, you don't know how far we've come. You don't get how far we've come. But you got this comedy half-hour sitcom based in you know somewhat modern-day inner-city um, black America. And then you've got probably the most lily-white show ever done on television. I don't, I don't think there was a black person in that uh, show until like the seventh or eighth season when they touched on you know the aftermath of slavery a little bit. Just it, It's as snow-white as it gets. It's, you got the... Prairie in the 1880s and 1890s and uh, that time in America, you got the 1970s and 80s. It's just a hundred years apart. Doesn't seem like there's anything in common. Do you know what there was in common? The attitude the men that led the families had was almost identical. They were strong in their faith and they led their family from that standpoint. Now, I don't follow the faith of the majority of you guys do. I have my own belief system, but I do respect it. And I believe that anything that a man does, if he does it well, is usually based on his faith, whatever it is, even if you're an atheist. There's a certain amount of innate belief in oneself and how you're connected to the larger whole that guides men that make wise choices. I think that's true of the Jewish faith, the Christian faith, the Muslim faith when, when practiced as it's supposed to be. Okay, I think that it's true of pagans. I think it's true of, of people that you know would say they're shamanic. I don't care what it is. That If you truly want to do well and you want to do good for other people and you're making wise choices, generally there's some grounding and rooting into your belief system. And in both of those cases, those men had a grounding and basis in belief system. It was a traditional American Christian belief. But it was there. Okay. The next thing was a belief that you only took help from others in the form of charity when it was absolutely required. Both men had episodes where they expressed that concept. This family will not take charity. We will get by. We always have. And that was the theme in America at the time. And today we have children being given crib sheets and called an information card, and you wonder, you wonder where the problem really lies. Is it really with our government, or is it with the people that had it so good, but didn't understand how good we had it, and tried to make it even better for our children by removing the challenges that made their lives worth striving to achieve? And... Let me ask you, when the last time you heard a TV show, a miniseries, or a movie, and I don't mean the last time you watched it, the last time you saw one produced, 
where the leader in that family is a man stood up from a place of faith, whatever it might be, and said, we will not take charity, this family will get by. It happened every other day, just 25, 30 years ago. You want to know what we've lost? Watch some reruns of shows like that. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Justin from Homehurst, Illinois. Uh, you mentioned in, in the show a couple weeks ago that plants in your area were starting to go on sale by planting in trees at the hardware store. Um, they're just now starting to go on sale up here beginning of June. Um, what would be the best way to keep those um, outside and wait to plant them for a fall planting? I've got some sheet mulch down. I want to put them in when they're when that starts decomposing. Uh, thanks. Bye. That's a real, real simple one. Um, number one, when you have trees in a pot, they dry out faster, so they need to be watered at minimum daily. I would probably take to watering them in the morning and the evenings. You can put them in a larger pot if you want to, but considering we're in June, and you're probably going to be planting in like September-ish, uh, end of August maybe where you're at, whenever the big cycle of heat breaks, but we still have a good 60 to 90 days before the first hard frost. That's when you, that's your fall planting window to get really good established trees coming out in the spring of the next year. Right in that number. So, you know, you're looking at two and a half months. It's not really the case that those trees need much of an expanded root ball. Though, if you give them that, it'll be there when you plant them. So you can upsize them if you want to, but you do not have to. The biggest enemy that you're going to have are two things, wind and sun. Uh, we think of ourselves when we think of gardening and all, we want lots of solar exposure and all. You want a place where these trees get maybe a couple hours of sun at most a day. You want to keep them nicely shaded, reflected light, well-watered, maybe feed them once or twice, just keep an eye on them uh, with a with a, with a, a gentle feed, uh, an organic feed, like um, miracle Grow makes an organic uh, feed that's uh, liquid, and uh, it's made from fermented beet juice. It's like 12 parts nitrogen. And use that at half the recommended strength that they give you because you're in a pot, you're confined, maybe twice through the summer, give them that, keep an eye on them. And maybe like a, a small handful of bone meal. Uh, blood meal is almost all nitrogen. Bone meal is actually a good blend of the three main nutrients. Good sprinkle of that on the top. That'll get watered in a little at a time over the summer. Mulch layer on top of the bone meal. Um, and, you know, don't let your mulch build up against your trunk in the trees. Every once in a while, make sure you're pulling it back. You can actually rot the, the, the bark and the cambium of the tree if you have wet wood against it too much. So keep that pulled back. Uh, with wind, it's just it's inevitable that these pots end up blown over. So find some way to anchor them. You can surround them with cinder block or something like that, um, or you know even if you have a place where you can kind of shelter them from the wind or what have you. But the wind will dry them out and blow them over, which damages them, and the sun will dry them out, which kills them. So if you're only going to do this for a couple of months, I would just probably leave them in the pot, find a shady area, something with dappled shade is great. You know, if it's if it's shaded all day, but there's little specklings of light getting through, like understory forest type stuff, that is the bomb. That is the place. Somewhere where you can see them. That when you come home and you look in your backyard or you walk out in your front yard, somewhere every day that when you go outside, you're always going to see them. If you don't see them, you'll forget about them. you go three or four days without watering them, and you'll either damage them a lot or you'll kill them. So if you can see them, keep them somewhat shady, keep them watered, lightly fed, 
there you go. That's and, and protect it from wind, and just hold on to them until you know you've got that planting window. And that's here's what I would do. I would look at your average first frost date, and I would target 90 to 60 days ahead of that. And if I got into like 58 days or something like that, I would be okay, right? But I wouldn't go much inside of 60. 90 may be too hot still. And I'm telling you, I'm leaning more toward this. I'm thinking actually about doing a food forest expansion workshop at my property in September, for those that might be interested in that. Um, where we're going to extend this food forest. I've got some ideas on how to do that. I'm going through inventory now with Bob Wells about buying more trees from him in the in the fall. I'm trying to try to do a design this weekend actually for it. I'm either going to do it on my own or I'm going to do it as a workshop. Um, and I'm doing it mainly because the trees that I planted in about mid-September last year that were cheap, abused trees on clearance at Walmart for $10 bucks are blowing up right now. They look two years ahead of the trees I planted this spring, which were good quality trees. I just think that a lot of times, for especially perennials that can overwinter, that fall planting period gets those roots established deeply, and a lot of times those roots are still doing things down there even when that tree looks dormant. And I'm seeing the dividends in it, so that's what I would do, and that's why I would do it, and that's how I would, I would time my planting. Technically, you can plant them anytime, but I've seen trees... Put in the ground too close to frost that would winter over with no problem, but when they get hit with a heavy frost without enough time to establish, stone dead. Let's take another call. Actually, I'll read a question that I sent to Ben Falk. Um, this was a question that I got, and knowing that Ben has ponds and swims in ponds, then he also has ducks, I figured he would be better qualified to answer this question than me, because all my ducks swimming are in kiddie pools and stock tanks, and I can promise you in a 50- to 100-gallon pool or stock tank after ducks have been in there. I'm not swimming in there. So here was the question. This came from Ben. Is it safe to swim in a pond that ducks live and poop in? And frankly, if they swim in it, they poop in it. That's what they do. I've got four pecking ducks and uh, they're all uh, that are a month old and nearing the point of being outside all the time. I'd like to put them and their duck house by my half acre pond, which is 25 feet deep. My wife just said she and the kids want to swim in the pond. Is that safe with duck poop and bacteria? Should I look at building a pool for the ducks and for my or for my family instead of building a pool for the ducks or for my family instead? Thanks, Ben. Um, I'll let Uh, Ben, answer Ben's question, and I'll give you a few more thoughts on it, and we'll go to the next call. Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk calling with um, an answer to the question about um, having four Pekin ducks um, in a uh, pond that's half an acre and is 25 feet deep and swimming in that pond. Um, I would think you're almost guaranteed to be okay to swim in that pond I, you know you can't say for sure it really has to do all to do with flow rate um you know you could swim in a um a tenth of an acre pond that's five feet deep uh with a hundred ducks in it if it has uh, you know a ton of flow going through it i mean you can swim in rivers that have a lot more biology in it than um, four ducks and, and a lot more manure in them and be okay if the flow is great. So uh, it's all about all about that. I mean, it seems like you have a lot of water, half uh, 25 feet deep and half an acre. That's a, that's a massive amount of water. Um, and your flow rate to keep that pond full, if it does stay full, is probably pretty good. Um, 
it's it, it, you know in addition to flow rate it is about overall volume too but it's more so i think about the refreshing um time the, the residence time of that water and the refresh rate of that water which has to do with flow so you probably should be fine but you know different people are sensitive to duck poop bacteria in different ways um I would probably test it out by swimming in it, you know, having adults swim in it first and, you know, for a couple of weeks and seeing if it's fine before you have like a, a three-year-old go in. But, you know, it also has to do with how much of that bacteria you're absorbing and cycling, how much other biology is in that pond. But it's probably a, a pretty safe situation. Hard to say for sure, of course, without without seeing it. And everyone responds differently, so there's no way to know. But I would test it out and feel generally comfortable with that as a swimming pond. Uh, thanks. I, I personally can't even get my head around how the insignificant amount of excrement from four ducks in a pond that large could be of any real concern. But I would hedge the way Ben is, because you know, you're talking about something that could be a, an issue uh, for health, and it may not even have anything to do with, with the ducks. For instance, uh, several people a year, Uh, usually children for one reason or another, uh, die from a bacterium called uh, Nigeria florea. I'm sure I pronounced it wrong. But it usually ends up getting in through the nose, and it actually eats the brain. And once it's in there, there's almost nothing that can be done. And you know, I feel for parents that have been through losing a child to this, but it's extremely rare, and you're probably more likely to die on a school bus in a collision than from you know getting this even if you swam every day of the summer. And that's how I feel about most risks. I'm not saying there isn't any risk. I'm saying, like, where do you draw the line on what you won't do because there's a risk, right? And that's, we're back to teacupping people again. And I saw this special. The reason I know about it, I saw this special. It was either on Dateline or 2020 or something like this. And these parents, what they wanted is a national movement to get all children who swim in ponds and lakes and streams to wear a nose plug. And I'm like, you know, honestly, these nose plugs they wanted to put in these kids, the kids are more likely to get beat up than get this bacteria. You know, by kids picking on him because he's got this plug in his nose. How about you teach him not to breathe in through your nose? And the reason I bring that up is, like, you know, swimming without opening your mouth in the water and inhaling water. And, and when you jump in water, knowing how to jump in water so you don't take a big shot of water up the nose. And, you know, try to get your kids off of this hold in the nose. Well, I don't get this. Who are these being? What? Little kids, you let them do it. But, I mean, sooner or later, you've got to learn how to jump in water without holding your nose. Right? It's... It, 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 it. <laughs> I don't know. It's another one of these teacup things that bugs me. Look in with the nose, and you see people that are in their teens and their twenties hold their nose, and jump in water. Like, God, what is wrong with you? Learn how to not take a big shot of water up the nose, and it's for a standpoint of it doesn't feel good, and the standpoint of is it can cause you, you know, injury in some way, like from a pathogen. It makes it more likely. But the reality is, we have children every year that die from swimming in chlorinated treated public pools. So are you going to, like, well, there's a risk, so I'm not going to swim in a pool, right? I, I don't remember what the bacteria that does that is called, or the particular pathogen, but pathogen that does that is called, but it's extremely resistant to chlorine. And it, it's, it's present in most bodies of water. It's just that it doesn't usually cause any harm. But at certain times, either the person's susceptible or, or what have you. So it's not, I, I don't think there's any way that anybody could tell you it's ever 100% safe to swim in anything. The, 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 the choice always has to be a balance of the risk versus what you're trying to do and is it worth doing it. You know, I, I can tell you that I grew up as a kid in two places, Florida and Pennsylvania. And in Jacksonville, Florida, 
there were ponds everywhere. And there were ducks in and if there was a pond, there was a duck in it. If there wasn't a duck in it, there was a duck in it the next day. Somebody had some scubbies or something, dumped them off and, and put them in there. We were in ponds as kids all the time. No one ever got sick. All the time. We were in swamps. We swam in creeks that had alligators and water moccasins in them. Um, we did things that I would never let my kid do. I mean, flat out. Not because I'm afraid you're going to get sick, but because there were legitimate dangers in some of the crazy stuff we did as kids. But, you know, am I part of the teacup problem, too, if I say that? Right? And I, I'll put it to you this way. It's not like our parents let us do this stuff. Our parents gave us the freedom that we found our way into doing these things. So maybe I have let my kid do some of this stuff without knowing it. Maybe that's okay in some situations as they get older. But um, And then in Pennsylvania, yeah, there is a website dedicated to the coal region, and it has listed a published place of, of swimming holes in Pennsylvania. I found this the other night. It was really nostalgic. You know, it had everything from burger joints and hoagie places to swimming holes, you know, where I grew up in the coal region. I would say, like, of the top ten, I've swam in six of them. I'm sure there's something dangerous in all of them. But that didn't prevent us from swimming there. Apparently it doesn't prevent anybody from swimming there now, except some of them have probably been closed due to the liability issues. But we swam in old old strip mine holes and in, uh, in, in quarries. And, I mean, I just think that we've gotten to a place where we're too worried anymore. Now, would I swim in a pond of, let's say, a twentieth of an acre, four or five feet deep, that wasn't spring-fed, that didn't have a natural flow like Ben was talking about, that had a couple hundred ducks crap in it every day? Well, probably not. Probably not. You know, I, I highly doubt. You, there'd have to be a serious amount of money involved and a, and a really quick hot shower involved to get me to do that. So it's everything in context. But I basically agree with Ben. I, I think you'd feel fairly safe with this. And uh, I do think it makes sense, though, when you're swimming in natural bodies of water like this, when you have open sores, don't swim. Teach children not to take water in their mouth or their nose. Make sure they're competent swimmers in any body of water before they go in. But really teaching children about keeping water out of the nose and mouth is important. And the reason I say not to have them jumping in holding their nose all the time is because that means they haven't actually learned how not to. If that makes sense. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Dave in New York. I've got a question for you. Uh, I am looking into designing and selling gun stocks, and I'm looking for the best way to do that. And here's my background. Uh, I've started uh, working with SolidWorks uh, 3D design. I've taken a class on it and uh, don't know a good way uh, for uh, mass production of manufacturing. And uh, I'm looking at kind of uh, a niche where uh, I'm starting out with designing stocks for the AR-7 um, Henry survival rifle platform, but looking to expand to other things. And uh, I'm looking for any advice you have on uh, production and design um, as far as I would really like to avoid the whole business, business tax thing if possible, but I would understand if I can't, and uh, how to go about, uh, well, just doing that. All right. 
Uh, thanks for your time. Bye. I like this question, but I'm going to immediately steer you away from the AR-7 survival rifle, and I'll get to why in a second. So I want to start out with the first part of the question. Well, not the first part, this mid-thing toward the end where you just made it. I'd like to avoid the business-business tax thing if I can, but I understand that. Okay, so um, it, it, at this stage in the game, it's not even something you need to worry about because there's no reason at this point, specifically since you're not doing anything from a true firearms manufacturer. In other words, if you make a gun stock... Uh, there's no, you don't have to register with the federal government or any kind of crap like that to make gun stocks. It's a, it's an accessory. Uh, and as far as I know, there's nothing. And it, you want to check legally to make sure that I'm right on this. But I know enough people making stocks for guns to, to just do it out of their garage and no one bothers them. So I can't see how uh, a gun stock uh, is going to cause you any kind of need to register as a, uh, a firearms manufacturer or anything like that. I mean, different companies sell gun stock kits. I, I just can't see that it's really an issue. But again, that's something you would legally want to check into. But in any event, you could do business as a DBA, doing business as under a name. You could do it as a private individual, making stocks. Uh, again, you're not making anything that actually changes the function or action of the weapon. So... It's just a, it's just a stock. It's a piece of furniture, for, for, for lack of a better term. Plastic, wood, laminate, whatever. It's furniture. So, I don't see any reason to worry about getting in any kind of complicated legal structure early on. And even if you did decide you want to incorporate, the, the only time there's, you call it a business tax. A business tax means the business pays the tax, and it's not a business tax. It means you pay the tax. That's it. And a lot of the advantages that people sell to you when they're selling you on having your own company, your own corporation for tax advantages, if you're an individual doing business as self-employed as you would be with this, uh, even if you have a full-time job, you have self-employment income, um, you do Schedule C, Schedule A, and you take all these deductions anyway. So you, you don't really need to have a business entity to be able to take advantage of tax deductions and things like that. It's profit and loss on a business. If you did want to actually incorporate or set up a company, you could set up an S-Corp or an LLC. And either one of those can be an individual. And the money that's earned by the company, the company can determine a profit or loss as, a, as an entity, passes through to ownership. So you still it doesn't, it's not a double tax. So like a C-Corporation, the company declares a, uh, a profit. It pays a tax, and then whatever you take out of the company, you pay a personal tax on, and they're taxed separately, so it's subject to double taxation. But you can eliminate that by paying all the profit of the company to yourself as a salary and having the company make no money, right? Okay, so there's there's always that's it's just like, there's that's not a concern. But I just wanted to clear that up for people that have an issue with that. Now, why would I steer you off the AR7? You want to go into a niche business? Absolutely. If you said, I want to start making custom stocks for Ruger 1022s, I'd say, you know, you can do that, but there's about a billion options for people with Ruger 1022s. There's almost nothing that you can do with a stock that is not available from a mail order catalog right now with Ruger 1022. But if you want to go into niche, let's define niche. Niche would be an underserved, active sector where there's a demand for what you do. Okay, so I have to say the number of AR7 owners I've met in my life, including myself, because I own one, I can count on one hand. I don't think it's all that particularly awesome of a weapon. Um, if you can do something with the stock to make it not suck, great. But the whole point of the AR7 was that everything fits in the stock, and that's why it's big and, and, and bulky, kind of, and it's fat. It's not big and bulky, it's fat. The biggest problem I have with the AR7 is if you 
put that end cap on the stock and put it in a truck. Do you know what happens when it gets hot? You pick it up and the gun falls out of the stock. So I think that's an issue. So, you know, maybe there's a market there. I don't know. I just don't think your market's that big. And I don't know of like an AR7 forum, right, or, or anything like that. It's not a tinkerer's gun. I think you should look at something like the New England Firearms and H&R Handy Rifle. This has a cult following. If you want to go into a niche, go somewhere where there's a cult following. SKSs probably have a lot of opportunity, but there's an issue with the handguard. Uh, it's very difficult to remove that piece of wood. A lot of people that do the um, the nylon stocks on them, when they when they see everything that goes into getting that handguard off, they just paint it black and leave the wood on the on the handguard. And it's funny. A lot of times you'll see an SK at a gun show that's got a nylon stock. And you pick it up, and it looks like it's all been done. And you, you when you look at the the handguard, that piece of wood on the handguard, it's it's just painted black to match because the person just went, I'm not going through the crap to get that off. So, and SKs have a lot of options as well. Marlin Model 60, second most popular firearm in the world. There's the only gun that outsells the Ruger 10-22 is the Marlin Model 60 tubular magazine 22. I would look into something like that. High Point, the uh, carbine, has a huge following, though that market got pounded a little bit in the secondary when High Point actually listened to its customers and started coming out with some really innovative stocks of their own that are made for the weapon. But there's probably still opportunity there. Um, I would say that you, what you need to do is find, find guns that have real followings. If the gun has a Yahoo email list dedicated to it, Uh, the Rossi single shots, you know, or if it's part of a group of guns, like there's a single shot uh, shooting list that spun off of the H&R NEF list in, in Yahoo groups. And it, it encompasses, yes, the NEF and H&R, but also the Rossi's. Um, if, if there's somebody out there that's, like, got it dedicated to that, uh, your lever action Marlins have a huge following. And it's it, there's not a lot of options to, to putting different stocks on the weapon. So... If you want to go with the AR-7, that's fine, but how do you start then? Well, you make it, you put out a website, you put out an email, you know, subscribe list, you do some YouTube videos, you show what you've done, why it's better, and you start marketing it as best you can, but where do you market it to? I don't know. So if you did it for NEF H&R and you had some really cool stocks that were different than anything else out there, then I'd research out there and I'd look at the – see, now you have this list that I joined in 1999 or 2000 on Yahoo. I think I'm the oldest member that's still on that list. That There was like 30 people before me, but none of them are still there. They're gone now, right? So – and I don't post to it much anymore, but I'm still there, right? So you could go back through years, literal years, of feedback from people, what they like, what they don't like, what they're looking for. Build a couple prototypes, and instead of spamming the list, hey, come by mine, post some pictures to the list. Look what I did on my guns. And now you've got immediately a fanboy audience that's interested in what you're doing. So I just think if you pick something, and I'm not saying do any FH&R. I'm saying... Pick something with a following like that that's underserved. You know, there's, you know, there, at least there's 22 long rifle lists. You know, and you know, if you find a list of people or a community of people dedicated to 22s, almost every single one of them owns a Marlin Model 60. 
And a 1022 for that matter. But again, the 1022 has lots of options. Look for the place with the cult following that's not served, that has potential. Because the, the NEFs have tremendous potential to do some beautiful things with stock work on those. They really do. Um, I think that the other way to look at this is from a prepper standpoint, there's probably a lot of opportunity in developing gun stocks that are meant to house kits for popular um, firearms that, that, that are very popular, that do have other options. Winchester Model 7, Winchester Model 70, Revington Model 700, Savage Model 110, etc. That I would go where the numbers are with large numbers of owners and then find the niche within the large tank. Because I think if you got all the AR7 owners in a, a few gymnasiums together, you wouldn't need many schools to pull that off. I really don't. I don't just don't think there's that many of us out here. And I don't know anybody that really is excited about the fact that they own one. They kind of bought one, like it was kind of cool, and I wanted one, and I got it. And yeah, okay, it does what it does, but it's, I mean, it's not that great. I'd rather have the takedown Ruger that they came out with recently as a truck gun, as a pack gun, than the AR-7. It, it's just not a good gun. Sorry, it's 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 actually a terrible gun. When I when I really think about it, in in every way that you judge a gun. It beats a sharp stick. I'd rather be stuck in the woods with it than with no gun. But if you said you can pick another gun, especially another .22, I would tell you that I would pick almost anything available over the AR-7, especially anything that's available in a semi-auto. Uh, I'd take a Marlin Model 60 over the AR-7 tomorrow morning. I'd take a .10-22 over it like nobody's business. Um, the old Remington semi-autos, I don't remember what they are, you, you name it, I would, I would probably take it over the AR-7. It's clunky, it is accurate, it does work, it does function, I just don't think you have the, the niche that you think you do there. Now, here's where you entrepreneur brain over somebody else's instinct. If you know you have it, if you know it's out there, if you know the people that are looking for it, then by all means build it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Steve Colorado again. Hey, just a quick question for you. What is the best way to utilize ringneck pheasants on a homestead, uh, kind of the way we have been thinking about as far as tractoring or in some of the ways that we use birds? Um, should we keep them kind of like moving on a prepper does quail, just maybe not in such a, a, a confined space, but uh, just keep it for meat and eggs? Or should we utilize them in tractors, or should we just set up a, a nice big uh, pen for them with a large circus net over them uh, and either hunt them or just do need, like I said. Uh, love to hear your thoughts. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Ah, the ringneck pheasant. Um, let's see. If I'm going to farm ringneck, if I was going to personally farm ringneck pheasant, here's how it would have to be. I would have to have somebody that was going to pay me a premium for ringneck. Because while I like to eat pheasants, and I used to be a heck of a pheasant hunter, and I've never turned up my nose at pheasant, when it comes down to it as a product for the homesteader to consume, chicken beats it. It just does. It just does. In fact, what makes pheasant better than chicken most of the time is that it's out in the wild and it's foraging and things like that. So if you put chicken in that environment, you get an animal with a bigger breast, uh, better definitely better quality drumsticks. You don't have all that tendon in the drumsticks. Um, more, more weight, you know, per bird. 
Uh, so I would probably, for food, raise chickens over pheasants. And if I was going to raise like a game bird, I'd probably look at partridge or quail or something before I would go to pheasant. It's just easier. If I was going to raise pheasants, so if I was hell-bent on it and I wanted to raise pheasants, I'd probably go with a, um, a coop-and-run model, uh, a two-run model. So I'd have a coop with at least two runs, with a run on each side, and I'd rotate the birds back and forth to give the ground time to recover. And I'd probably want to do more like a wagon wheel pattern, have a coop and like maybe four runs or six runs that are spoked out around the coop. And that way I would, I would also have these runs with a top because ring nets fly, and they will fly. And even if you clip their wings, they will get enough air to get out of just about anything unless it looks like a prison. Um, all the gun clubs that raised ringnecks uh, for stalking in Pennsylvania when I was a kid growing up there had basically runs for them with, with some coops for them to go into. And uh, they, were, they had a roof every single time because those birds would get out. So that would be one way I would do it. Now, what if you had... 30, 40 acres. I would probably raise them and adapt them and put them into a wild state and hunt them off my own property. As long as I wasn't growing something they were going to be too much of a problem with, I would treat them more like a wild bird. Now, you might have regulations in your state where you can't do this. I don't know because you didn't tell me where you're calling from. So you got to look at your state regulations. You, you might not be legal. It might be legal for you to raise them, but it might not be legal, legal for you to raise them open. To let them escape. Because if you do this, they are going to go past your property line. They are going to go out and they're going to inhabit other places. And if there's hunters there, they're not going to be having a problem with it. But your state might. So I would say the best way to do it is in a run model. You could do them with tractors and that would work well. And that would probably be better. Um, when I say I would do it with a run based on what I know, I'm looking old school, right? I'm looking what gun clubs did, right? A, a large tractor system, covered top, would probably work really well. Um, and I'm not familiar with like their breeding cycle, how many eggs a hen lays, how often a hen lays. Um, I would assume you're probably looking at similar ratios. Like if you were running a breeding colony, four to six hens to one rooster, and incubating your eggs and maybe growing your, your, your babies out in their own tractors, Um, or letting your, I mean, pheasants should go broody no problem. So, but that begats, like, so now you've got a broody pheasant, you're trying to move them in a tractor. Um, I don't know. You know, you might be better suited to go with a small coop and run system, keep your breeding colony there, and then migrate your runs of chicks to tractors and tractor them to the point where you're ready to harvest them. I just think you're looking at a long meat cycle. I, I don't really know much about raising pheasants, to tell you the truth. Uh, and the only places I've seen it done is being raised specifically for the purpose of wild introduction to be, to be released. So I would actually say probably the best place you could learn more about this is there are game farms where they have, you know, a couple hundred, a couple thousand acres. And they raise pheasants. And when hunters come in, they stalk pheasants, and the hunters hunt the stalked birds that were stalked like yesterday or this morning. And I don't really like that practice. I guess people learn to shoot and, and what have you and get some experience and all, but it's not really hunting. But it's done. 
I don't want it stopped. I just, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go to one of those game farms and, and call myself a hunter when I'm doing that. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything bad about you if you did. And I wouldn't, if you came home and said, Hey, I got some pheasants. You want some? And I would say, Yeah. And you know, I went to one of the game farms you don't like. I'll eat them anyway. Right? Cause it's, you know, it's, it is more sporting than me hanging one of my chickens up and slitting its throat. So, okay, fine. Just not really what I want in a hunt. But they are very good at breeding healthy pheasants. That's what they do. They all, Almost everyone I've ever seen has their breeding on site. They're not buying birds and having them shipped in. So if you talk to those folks about how they raise their birds, uh, you could probably do pretty well. Now, they're probably feeding them stuff you don't want to feed them at all, but you could probably get a good idea of how they're done. But you've got a bird that can fly. And you've got a bird that even if you impair its ability with clipping its wings, it's probably still going to get out. Um, you know, I've noticed with certain breeds of chickens, you can clip the one side of the wing and destabilize the flight, and they still get over a five-foot fence. From my experience with pheasants, you add to that ability. You're talking six, seven feet, they probably are still going to get up and out of. And a determination that most chickens don't have, too, that if they can get up five feet on a six-foot fence and get their claws into it, they're going to pull themselves up and over. Uh, I would estimate. So I don't know. It really comes down to your motivation. What are you doing it for? Are you doing it for commercial or are you doing it just for personal use? Personal use, if I had the land and the legal ability, I would be raising a small colony, producing offspring, and stocking my land and letting those birds go truly wild and having enough time to adapt. And I would be out there with uh, you know a Brittany or a spring, Springer Spaniel and I would be hunting and I would be very, very happy in that environment. I wouldn't consider that like the game farm because the birds have the time to adapt. My problem with the game farms is they take this bird that's freaked out because it's been grabbed up out of its run where it's always been protected and they stick it in an area and when they bring the hunters through with dogs, they know that bird's sitting right where they put it. And sometimes it leaves, but a lot of times it's just sitting there freaked out like, what do I do now? And you could see this a lot of times with your domestic fowl. When you take them out of confinement, they have them in a small, like we have birds today that just graduated, right? And, and not the, not the way where they become food. So they've been in a small, there's a 22 ducks that have been in a small chicken tractor. It's about four foot by eight foot. And they've been there for, uh, about two and a half weeks now. And every night they go back into the brooder. Well, today they went from a four foot by eight foot chicken tractor to a 16 by 16 foot hog panel enclosure. And when I put them in there this morning, they all ran in the corner and they just sat there like, what the hell do we do? They were all together, so they adapted really quick. Now, imagine if you took one and put him in the woods by himself. And he's never been alone, and he's never been in the woods. He just sits there and waits. What do I do? And even if he moves, he's not going very far. He's going to find someplace sheltered to stay where you've already started out putting him somewhere that way. Dog comes by. Oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. It holds and eventually gets you know kicked up and, and, and shot. So... I think you might as well just put them in a box like they do with pigeons and shoot them out of the box and call it hunting. But that's neither here nor there. It's, again, up to you what you want to do. Um, if someone's got familiarity with raising game birds, like we've done quail, but you know partridge, pheasants and stuff like that, and maybe you can educate me as well as to how you would do that for meat production and keep to more of a permaculture homestead ethic rather than just have confined runs how you would make that work with pheasants, and make it viable. That's my other thing is you got to make it financially viable. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Go to the Survival Podcast, click on Guests, and uh, 
we'll get you on the air. And on that note, anybody that ever like to be on the air, man, just go to the site, click on guests, fill out a guest form. I'm not guaranteeing you will book you, but we book most people. We really do book most people that fill out a form, and we find that people that come from the audience make better guests. They really do. If you have somebody you think would be a good guest for the survivalpodcast.com, you don't need my permission. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on guests, get a link to the guest form, copy the link, email them, tell them about the show, tell them you'd love to hear them here, and send them the link. Don't fill the form out for them. We've had one person do that, and the person they did it for was very upset. Um, I always want the person that wants to be on the air to fill out the form. I get a lot of times emails, why don't you go get this guy on the air? Why don't you get that guy on the air? The reality is right now we stay booked out two to three months, and we get really good people that really care about this community that want to be on the air. So I don't do a lot of recruiting of guests. I don't try to get a lot of people onto the show that don't know who you are and don't care about you as an audience. I want people that feel like I don't just want to be on TSP because a bunch of people will hear me like I would on a radio show. I want to be on TSP because I'm part of this community and I have something to share. Those are always the best guests. I'd love to have you on the air. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. I hope you enjoyed my uh, my couple rants and uh, all the other great stuff as well. Love to hear from you guys on today's show. If you have any comments on it, go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on episode 1300. And what the heck is today's episode? I think it's 1362. Uh, you can comment below there. One guy said to me recently he didn't think he could comment until he joined the MSP. That's not how it works. TSP is free, the blog is free, the forum is free, the Zello channel is free. Uh, MSP is something you do if you want to, if you want to support the show. With that, this has been Jack Spirico rounding out yet another week, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Redemption. 